Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and I'm joined by... Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute and... Dalibor Rohach, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Um, today, we will be joined by Mark Krotov, who is a journalist now with, I think, over 20 years of experience um, on the Russia service of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Mark, thank you so much for um, joining us. Uh, we um, are sitting here in the heart of the West trying to figure out now for almost a year what, um, like many of us covering the war, what um, what Russians are thinking. And um, there's a lot of um, speculation on that. I think there's been an endless um, series of op-eds written in um, Western um, news lines. And I we are aware that um, you at Radio Free Europe get a selected audience. Um, but before we go into, we're keen to hear about what you are covering um, with your service um, regarding to the war and how um, you're covering um, Ukraine and the larger region. We want to ask you, based on the selected audience that you're getting, how the people that are listening to you from Russia, we, we know that you're um, outside of Russia now for several years, but how the people um, that are listening uh, in or consuming um, your products from within Russia are um, thinking about the war. Um, to what extent um, you um, see support for or the eternal debate about the lack of support for that? And um, to what extent audience is um, reaching out with uh, messages? If you can give us an overview of that, we'll delve into that and then um, go over to um, some of the topics that you're covering and how we can think about them. Sure. The, there are several bullet points uh, if we speak about that. So first of all, the numbers matter. So our audience, uh, what is important is that we are blocked in Russia and uh, Russian authorities uh, managed to quite successfully uh, block an access to our website, as well as we were deprived of our air, uh, of our possibility to air our programs. It was long before the war, uh, but still, uh, since the war broke up, uh, we didn't experience very big decline in numbers, actually, which means that the interest, uh, the, there was a, actually a spike of the interest, uh, oppositely. And that matters for us a lot, because we see that we are speaking uh, to real people, that we, uh, that we bring our message uh, to real audience, really large audience. Uh, this audience uh, changed a lot uh, since the war started. Uh, now, a lot of people fled Russia, as you may know. If, uh, for example, two years ago, uh, most of our audience was in Moscow or in other large Russian cities. Now, sometimes when you look into statistics, you can see that the, there are some cities like uh, European large cities uh, among, on the first places and the cities with their uh, big data centers uh, because uh, people use VPN if they stay in Russia and that's why we see them being placed not in Russia actually but in some European or 
other countries uh, where that data where those data centers are based. Yes, Russian audience audience differs not only in that. There are people who support Ukraine, who don't think that this war this war is just. But also among our audience, there are people who also are very sorry for Russian uh, conscripts, for example, who are being forced to go to war, and uh, they like uh, they like this attitude when you, we are not just blaming them, but uh, trying to uh, to walk in their shoes. And uh, this is also the thing the thing that uh, matters a lot, I think, because you you should not think that everybody uh, in a, who is listening to Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty is the people who are just dividing the world into black and white, like Ukraine is good and uh, Russia is bad. No. Of course, we receive a lot of, we receive a lot of feedback, uh, positive and negative too. But uh, the more important fact, I think, is that we are being reached out by people, by sources uh, who currently serve in the Russian army. We have been reached by them from time to time. And people who recently served in the Russian army but quit after the invasion started. And they want to help. They want to to bring some news, some exclusive news to us uh, because they know that they trust us and they know that uh, we are unbiased, uh, that we have this uh, firewall, that we are really objective. And that's why they're that's why they're not hesitant to contact us, even if it uh, poses uh, some kind of threats for them. And it happened uh, a lot of times uh, since uh, since February 23, 23rd. Uh, this is also important. Um, as for Russian public opinion, you know, uh, recently there was a case with a German radio station, Deutsche Welle. They aired the Vox Pop and uh, Russian authorities quickly found two people from the, from that Vox Pop uh, who said something bad about war, about Putin or about anything. They found them and they charged them with the minor offense. And this explains uh, why you should not uh, totally trust uh, any public uh, any public uh, opinion polls or anything like that in Russia because uh, people are really under the constant threat and this threat uh, only becoming uh, more and more dangerous uh, with every next week of the war you mentioned just as a quick follow-up that some of the people that are reaching out to you um, were recently um, within the army but quit. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this quitting process, to what extent it is possible? Because we do see in the Western media um, oftentimes the extremes, that it's impossible, that recruitment is so um, heavy before and after uh, February 23rd from the stories that you're getting um, into Radio Free Europe. How is your assessment of this um, quitting process? Yes, uh, there is a difference because uh, people uh, by whom we were reached out, who reached out to us, they were not uh, young, fresh conscripts, uh, mobics, as they, as they call them. They were regular army soldiers with a big experience and they had contracts. And uh, only also important thing is that it was like the last time it happened, it was before the uh, cons conscription campaign. So there was an absolutely legal possibility for them to terminate their contracts at any time. 
And they decided indeed to do that because they didn't like what uh, what they saw in Ukraine. For example, we were reached uh, by one of the soldiers of uh, the infamous 64th Brigade from uh, Russian Far East city of Khabarovsk. This brigade uh, is one of brigades which was in Bucha. And he didn't like what his... Uh, what his comrades did and he, that's why he reached out to us but then a lot of things changed and you are right that now it's much more difficult for soldiers especially for the newly conscripted ones to just say i don't want to fight anymore and go and go home but uh, the fact is that when you receive the the letter which says that you should show up in the your local record recruitment office military office uh, unless you go there you are not uh, risking much so probably you will not be chased by police they will not look for you they will just they will just forget about you with some time but if you did if you already showed up there so you can probably think that you are caught because uh, once you are there, they take you, they bring you with no, uh, with no normal equipment, with no training to the front. And when you are there, it's much, much harder to escape. So you, you, you brought up um, these, these more recent conscripts that have been uh, joining the military since September. And really since September, there have been rumors of another wave of mobilization to, to add to whatever manpower has been mobilized through the first one, uh, this partial mobilization announced at the end of September. So, so what's happening in that on on that front? Because there have been recurrent rumors of you know it's coming you know in the next couple of days. Is it is it is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen because the politics of it would be so difficult for the regime, or is it indeed underway in a sort of less conspicuous manner? Uh, with with people sort of being recruited, you know, more discreetly in more remote areas of Russia, and 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 and, and where, where do you see the, the this this sort of recruitment process going based on what you're hearing from Russia? So first of all, formally mobilization never ended; uh, it's ongoing. Of course, uh, there are some waves. There was a huge first wave. Now it's going more slowly, and as you've said, more discreet. Let's say so. Uh, but the problem uh, why Russian uh, authorities are not didn't uh, launch a new big wave of mobilization as it was, uh, for example, promised by Ukrainian uh, military. They said that it will be end of the January and we are here and we don't see this new wave. But the problem is not politics, but the problem is uh, Russian army logistics because they conscripted like 300,000 uh, 300, people. Uh, they say that they've sent like half of them to the front lines, not to, right to the trenches, but closer to the Ukrainian border or closer to the border between to the line between Russian and Ukrainian troops. And half of them, 150,000, uh, stay somewhere in Russia uh, close to the Ukraine. It's because they don't have a lot, enough uh, means to, uh, to handle it. Uh, because if you conscript such a large amount of people, you need to feed them, you need to lodge them somewhere, you need to do a lot of things. And the uh, Russian army simply is not capable of it. So when we speak about uh, mobilizing or, uh, like two 
200,000 more conscripts, it, it will be even harder. Maybe I'm, I, can, I don't know, but maybe uh, they took their time and maybe now they are preparing, first of all, they should prepare this uh, and should solve these logistic issues. If they solve them, no, nothing will stop them from conscripting as much people uh, as they can, again, feed, lodge, and, uh, and so on. Uh, just sticking on the uh, topic of uh, sources of Russian manpower, uh, you know, it's, it's been the, the Wagner group that has been so much in the headlines for the last several months. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it was from uh, the rounding up of convicts from prisons to the absolute, uh, you know, slaughter of uh, troops in the open. Uh, before Bakhmut, for example. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering if you've gotten any feedback about that whole process, um, you know, from, from your sources. I can imagine that, you know, regular army soldiers, especially those who have, have left service, must be somewhat horrified by, you know, sort of how almost inhumane this, you know, and unprofessional uh, these methods are. Yeah, absolutely. We, we have, we have several sources uh, among, uh, among, among Wagner soldiers, not uh, prisoners, of course, but uh, those who were with Wagner for several last years, who fought in Syria, who fought in Ukraine in 2014, 2015. It's just another kind of people. <laughs> they're trained, they're well-trained, and they're real, real professionals. So we have uh, sources among them, not 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 much, of course, but several. And yes, they are saying one of them, for example, recently reached uh, again uh, out to us. We keep uh, we keep uh, contacts with him uh, permanently, and he said that he cannot know he cannot know more. He want to do something. He want to quit. He want to help uh, uh, Ukraine. He thinks that it's all very unjust, and so on and so on. So he he sounds honest honest. Uh, that's uh, probably not only his feelings, uh, that's probably how some more people from uh, those kind of Wagner soldiers feel like, uh, I mean, more professional ones. As for those uh, prisoners, uh, they're nobody, actually. <laughs> so, no, they, they, they didn't reach out to us yet, but they reached out to other Russian media. For example, recently there was an interview with one of them, uh, they are also very different people, but they mostly don't have any military experience, and they have nothing to lose. That's why that that that's why uh, they are being conscripted. Because uh, when you sit in Russian prison, uh, there is not much things you can lose uh, except for your life. And to trade your life for the small chance of surviving in Ukraine, well, somebody some some people think that it's uh, not 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 the worst deal. So moving on maybe to what um, uh, your service, um, the Russia service of um, Radio Free Europe has been covering. Um, it's been now almost a year of the war, but in this context of um, a heightened attention and I guess heightened speculation about um, what, um, how the next few months are developing, 
I'm wondering how uh, you are choosing to cover and um, and follow some um, investigative lines. And the I guess the how I would like to frame it um, because I think it's useful is within the context of war, which is difficult to cover in the first place based on some of the the elements that you suggested at the beginning of the conversation, um, we see uh, an increased and not surprising rhetoric from the Kremlin that this is not anymore a war against Ukraine um, and the whole story about denazification, but it's a war against the West, a proxy war um, where Ukraine is being used. Um, and you, with the Russia service of Radio Free Europe, um, have to tread a careful line um, because um, it is an American service, but it is for the Russian people. And so I'm wondering, within this larger context and a specific um, audience that, of course, you are attracting um, and that you highlighted a bit earlier, what are the lines that you um, guys are prioritizing when you're um, covering um, over the last couple of months and into the next few months um, um, the war in terms of stories and investigations? So first of all, uh, I, I personally, I can speak for myself, do not experience any problems our radio being associated with the United States. And that's why our audience may think that, uh, uh, may believe this Kremlin narrative and think that uh, we are the enemies. No, because uh, there are several reasons for that. First of, uh, first of all is that we are trying, uh, we are doing our best uh, to be really objective and unbiased. Uh, the second thing is that uh, we personally, me and some of my colleagues, not only in Russian service, by the way, but in Ukrainian service and other services too, um, are specializing on open source uh, intelligence, open source evidence. And uh, this is actually a thing which everyone can prove by themselves. So it's uh, investigations based on open facts. And when you can double check the facts that you read, of course, you will trust the source uh, whomever with you are associating this source. So that's uh, that's not something uh, I experience problems with. As for what we cover, what we decide to cover or not to cover, uh, there are some some military things, some some news coming from the from the front which we of course try to investigate if we see that there is not a lot there is not enough information like some major strikes for example a recent strike on makivka uh, where russian conscripts die um, some major HIMAR strikes first of them and things like that uh, we try to gather all available evidence to double check it and uh, it's not only for some big investigations, it's a uh, daily routine work because, uh, again, we have a lot of services. They all cover uh, topics connected with the Ukrainian, with Russia-Ukraine war now. And we sometimes help them, not sometimes, every day we help them with verifying and checking the information from the front lines, which should be checked because... Uh, you know, maybe you've seen this disclaimer uh, on media that uh, the information currently can't be uh, instantly checked. So uh, you can see uh, disclaimers like this. And our goal is to avoid these disclaimers by checking the information quickly. And sometimes uh, we just stumble upon something. We're just uh, surfing the Russian social media, looking for some interesting photos, some interesting people. 
and we stumble upon something which may uh, seem not very sensational for for a person who is not very familiar with the topic, but uh, we can see the potential of the story in one photo, for example. And that's also how it works. I wonder if I could quiz you a little bit about the um, state of, 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 of the Russian opposition and particularly its putative leader, Alexei Navalny. So, so, so I, have, I have a twofold question. One has to do with the sort of immediate situation he finds himself in. So there have been stories about his health deteriorating, about him being in solitary confinement and, 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 and really being potentially in, 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 in danger uh, of, of, of losing his, his life. And, and the second part of the question has to do with the sort of question of how, how people in the West should think about him and his own views on the war and on the broader Ukraine question, if you will. So he has attracted a lot of criticism in the West for not stating very clear, clear in clear terms that, that, that Crimea was Ukrainian, for example. And and so there is this sort of ongoing discussion among, you know, Russia observers on whether he's a nationalist or whether, you know, people in the West should be putting their hopes into into him. So if you have any any thoughts on on either of those two, I would really appreciate them. You might excuse me, but uh, I'm not a political expert, actually. And uh, I think that this can be and should be discussed, but uh, after he will be freed from the jail. Uh, whilst he, while he is still there, in my opinion, this is not the most ethical thing to discuss. I mean, his uh, uh, allegedly nationalistic views and, and so on and so far. And it also, actually, in my opinion, does not have a lot to do with the Ukrainian war. So it's an, quite another topic. Putin has a lot of things to against Navalny, and I'm not sure it's very directly connected uh, with the Ukrainian war. Uh, unless he is freed from the jail, we should just demand him being freed because he is uh, obviously being put in the jail uh, for no reason, for the only reason that Putin hates him. Uh, and when he will be out of there, we'll, be, we'll get back to that. <laughs> That's fair. If I could ask a kind of lower brow version of, but similar questions, uh, which you can feel free to um, uh, to avoid, but I'm going to ask him anyway. Th- there are two things that are sort of constantly present in the American and Western media. One is sort of the modern form of Kremlinology, in which um, you know behind the curtain there's there's Putin. There's Prokhorin. Uh, there's the professional army leadership. You know, you know. Not so well. well okay, the incompetent <laughs> but uniformed uh, cadre. You know, seeking to, to preserve their places, at least you know, in Russian society, and then sort of an undefined blob of oligarchs. And it's like, you know, that there's a mixing bowl in which all these elements are constantly swirling, you know, with Putin as either the puppet master or somebody who has to uh, manipulate uh, various factions in order to retain his power. So that's one thing. I just making sense of that is very difficult to, to do. It's also really difficult to make sense of Russian state media, particularly the more outlandish, uh, you know, sort of. Fox News like wartime expert commentary that is, you know, by turns, you know, it's, it's like Russian poetry. It's like a, by turns 
you know, exalting Russian dominance, and then in uh, the the uh, depth of despair about Russian uh, prospects. But again, to a to Western sensibility, to an American mind, it's you know, it may be entertaining and repulsive at the same time, but it's very difficult to put it in some kind of context. But I apologize for the long question, but. If you no can uh, uh, at least give us your perspective on sort of those two, um, as I say, kind of tabloid, uh, co- you know, constant uh, tabloid uh, topics uh, in the Western media, I'd appreciate it. Uh, what do you mean by, uh, sorry, what do you mean by tabloid topics exactly? Well, I'm just saying that they're covered in kind of a, a you know, uh, uh, hyperventilating way it, it there's a lot of opinion chasing very little fact uh so um it's difficult to to know what to make of what what the stories and that which which are a constant factor you know but but whether they're based on anything or how we should understand them is is a mystery yeah unfortunately i'm not fortunately or unfortunately that's a fact i'm not living in states and i'm i'm not and i'm quite out of this criminology uh in the united states media anybody probably but the, the the fact as i've said we work with facts which we can prove we at least we try to so don't pay much attention to Russian media. Just they are, they are all they are, they will always try to push their narrative to to trick you somehow. If you want to make something sensible out of Russian media, uh, you should be really a political expert who follows all of them, uh, who searches for these signs. And, and believe me, after all, you will uh, you will end nowhere. You will uh, you will find yourself in a dead end, and you will find yourself. Yes, fooled. you ask too uh, much. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, but but what do you think Russians make of it? Is it is does it look as almost? Does it look like successful propaganda attempt by a Russian? Yes, it does. Oh, or 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 yeah, or or comical or a yes, combination. Yes, it does. Putin divides and rules. So in the in the beginning of the war, he was quite jealous that for Ukrainians this war is a real patriotic war, but not for Russians. And now we uh, again, it's only my personal feeling. Now the war became. Actually, more more really patriotic war for 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 Russian people. We see that uh, groups of Russian volunteers are sending a large amount of equipment to the front line, exactly like Ukrainians do. They try to act the same way. They try to follow modern technologies. They can bypass sanctions. They, for example, can buy one hundred uh, DJI drones somewhere through some through some companies uh, uh, in some weird ways but from china i don't know uh, but they try to do the same thing ukrainians do and uh, also don't underestimate you should one should not underestimate the natural hate which uh, russians have to ukrainian people since uh, not not maybe not only since the soviet union uh, dissolved but even before that uh, because they were jealous except, especially after 1991 they were jealous it's like jealousy to your uh, to your neighbor uh, who managed to 
to free himself from the tyranny. And uh, when Russians understood finally that uh, they didn't manage to do the same, they became even more jealous. Uh, jealous, And uh, it uh, resulted in, in even more uh, hate among people uh, to the Ukrainian, to, to, the, to the to Ukrainians. Uh, but again, the, this is my personal feelings based on what I've seen in Russia when I lived there for uh, for 39 years. Um, just to build on, and then over to you, Dadabor, to build on some of uh, one of the threads that you were sort of developing the jealousy of patriotic war. I wonder if you can help us, again, from your personal understanding, make sense of a question that hasn't found an answer yet, at least in our Western understanding. In the initial attempt, in the initial full-scale invasion about a year ago, Putin was very insistent on, and his proxies, of course, very insistent on denazification. Was that his attempt at making it a a parallel to a patriotic war, making it a parallel to World War II. Um, we're seeing, I think just today, he made um, comments about after 80 years, we see German tanks again um, on our borders. And does that speak to um, a Russian um, audience and in public that has learned about World War II only that it is about denazification. Um, how how did you understand his insistence on this element that here in the West remains, you know, a big mystery? Actually, if I may just jump in because my question is kind of auxiliary to to what you just said. Uh, specifically, I'm interested in the sort of revival of the cult of Stalin in Russia and the role that plays in this, which you refer to as as a sort of patriotic mobilization or revival. So we had the 80th, 80th anniversary of the Battle of Stalingrad recently. Uh, a statue of Stalin was unveiled in what is now Volgograd. The city uh, itself was renamed for a few days, is renamed for the, a few days. Is renamed for a few days. Yeah. That's, that's quite extraordinary. So, so what do you make of that sort of return of Stalin to the pantheon of, <laughs> if you will, Russian nationalist heroes? But, yes, this return, this return has a long year's history. It started not uh, not last year, and even uh, not five years ago. It started uh, much earlier, and uh, the, it was developing all this time. But of course, uh, the the invasion, Russian invasion, uh, gave it a new breath. I say so. As for the first question, was about uh, Yulia as well. Denazification. Yes, that's that. That's the that's that's just putting being delusion delusional with the, the with the narratives uh, which he uh, he himself developed for an internal audience because people. Uh, this is some simple thing to for people to buy uh, Nazis. So nobody loves Nazis. We hate Nazis. So look, they are Nazis. Uh, of, of course, uh, Ukrainians only made jokes of that. Of that, but uh, as you may have noticed uh, last year, after this uh, narrative was uh, pushed by Kremlin, then they dropped it actually. And now what we see with uh, this Stalingrad anniversary is just some. Uh, some remnant flashes of the, of this uh, when you you won't hear anymore that denazification is the purpose of the war in Ukraine. Nobody knows what what is the purpose, but uh, denazification is not being pronounced on TV often uh, or in on state media. 
So they dropped this because they just understood that it doesn't work. But it's interesting. I mean, I think you made a really profound point in sort of pointing out the uh, the sort of deficit of patriotism or, or patriot, you know, or the uh, legitimacy of the patriotic cause comparing Ukraine to, which clearly has a, a very powerful one, and and even even as much you know, so it is that is is as if Putin is constantly fumbling to try to characterize the war in some way that will echo World War II, great patriotic war rhetoric. And I'm wondering if this, the factor that Yulia alluded to earlier, sort of uh, broadening it into a war against the West is consistent with that theme. Uh, I mean, again, I have no idea whether it would be more successful than the previous Attempts. Yes, he's trying. He's trying to bring those two together. He's trying to say that uh, yes, we are fighting with Nazis, uh, but uh, back then in World War Two, we are also were fighting not only with the Nazis but with the Western countries who supported Nazis. Yes, he tries to he tries to put it all together and to sell to Russian people uh, uh, all together. I cannot actually say how successful he is in that uh, the war. Uh, the war generates the anger by itself. You know, when people die, and a lot of Russian soldiers die, uh, die uh, Russia, uh, by by most conservative estimates, Russia already lost like 70,000, 80,000 of people, and uh, people want to revenge. They have all, they all have uh, brothers, sisters, mothers, So every war is generating generating these patriotic feelings, uh, at least among people who lost their loved ones. Uh, that works much better, unfortunately, uh, than pushing any stupid narratives on state TV. It, it seems certainly to work. Um, I recall this video from somewhat recent of a, Uh, a woman um, in uh, uh, deep in the Russian heartland learning that she's lost her son. And instead of blaming the regime, she blamed and cursed the Ukrainians. So um, I know that these are, you know, filtered in, um, but, um, and, and of course, propagandized, but, um, but it, at least on, in some extent, it seems to be working. So To wrap up, Mark, um, before we thank you for joining us, um, just very brief, can you tell us what you, based on the interaction with with your audience as well, what you are expecting for the next year? You know, we have soon the one-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion. If you're looking into Russia, as you do all the time, Do you expect in that in one year from now we'll be in a similar place, or do you think there's chances that um, we'll be at least in terms of what is coming out of um, of the Russian public and expectations in a in a different place? I would I, I would put it this way: uh, we don't know where we will find ourselves uh, in the summer or next autumn, but we know for sure that uh, this depends on. Uh, barely on a few things and one of the more most important among them is the uh, unity of the western support uh, putin is not hiding the fact that he is expecting western support to dissolve with with the time and he says 
that on a long haul he will win any he will win anyway anyway uh so the most important thing uh is for west not to drop not to let this support uh, decline or drop if it will not uh, decline or drop ukraine will probably at least i would not call it a win uh but at least it can in theory reverse the situation uh, on the to the february 22 february 23 uh, we cannot call it a win for ukraine of course because uh, crimea uh, was still annexed by russia before the full scale invasion uh, but we this goal can be achieved uh, the only thing is the to keep supporting ukraine if this support indeed as putin hopes uh, will gradually decline uh, i'm afraid we can find ourselves not where we want to mark rodov thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it mark from um, the russia service of radio free europe radio liberty from me yulia zoja and my friends cezal donnelly and Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod and sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.